0: Well, it's hard to believe that uh, we're within four weeks of being at the end of another year. And uh, it's been my experience over the years that uh,
1: for those of us
0: who uh, serve here, that the years just keep going faster and faster. I know that might not be true for all of you, but I know many of you are hoping that uh, the the last four weeks will go extremely fast. Uh, What I want to do this morning is I want to uh, encourage you a little bit and maybe – by doing that, I'll have to admonish in a, little bit, in a few ways as well. But I want to talk to you this morning about two terms that are used an awful lot uh, in our culture, and sometimes they're very misunderstood. The two terms are mediocrity and excellence. Mediocrity and excellence. I don't have to tell you that you can pick up uh, almost any week, one of the news magazines that will have something to say about the declining quality of education in America, whether it's uh, in elementary school or in high school or even at the college level. Some years ago, Ernest Boyer, who just passed away a few few weeks ago, uh, who was then the president of the Carnegie Foundation, said this about college students. There is a disturbing evidence that college students are not well informed about the world in which they live that they are becoming more parochial at the very time the human agenda becomes more global, that many students lack historical perspective and have little knowledge of significant social trends that will consequently shape their lives. He said business and industry leaders complain about the communication skills and work patterns of graduates. There has been a decline in the performance of college students on the verbal sections of the graduate record examinations. He concludes. There is an urgent need to redefine carefully those educational purposes common to all institutions, to clarify conditions on campuses, and to clear and to be clear and constructive in offering proposals for renewal. Now that comes from one of the most respected educators in the United States, and I don't have to tell you that uh, when you come to an institution like this one of your primary concerns has to be the quality of your education. What I want to do this morning from the Word of God is to try to maybe encourage you uh, in this particular aspect of your life. There's no question that it's uh, very easy to be mediocre. Sometimes mediocrity has uh, an unfortunate connotation because mediocrity really just simply means... A conspicuous lack of distinction. Ordinary or between extremes. That really doesn't tell you a whole lot about
1: why you're mediocre
0: or not mediocre. It just says that's basically what it means to be mediocre. On the other hand, excellence has to do with the highest degree of good qualities. And these good qualities can be attached to many different things. It could be virtuous. It could be merit. But on the other hand, as you well know, your excellence can be in in other areas that maybe might not be so important. Or really, for that matter, even be good in and of themselves. Maybe you can become excellent at cheating. See my point? The point simply is, is that you have to put some construct you have to put some content along with the terms of mediocre and excellent. What I want to show you this morning from the Word of God is what I believe excellence means for the Christian. And I think, in my own mind, that a better term that we could use to define excellence for those of us who know Christ as our personal Savior is really the word faithfulness, the word faithfulness. Now, there's no question in your life that there are going to be areas that are easier for you, easier for you to excel in and to be excellent in, just as there are going to be areas in your life where you are mediocre. So the issue, once again, isn't so much that you judge yourself based on the definitions of these terms but that you make sure that you're really looking at the content of which these terms might describe. Now, the last thing we want to be as children of God are people that never fulfill our potential. And what I mean simply by potential is what God has potentially designed for each of us to be and to do. Well, how can, how can God then begin through his spirit to develop this quality of life within us? And I want you to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, one of my favorite passages. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 14. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 14. And I think in this passage, Paul will give us a partial answer as to what it means for the Christian to be excellent what it means for the Christian to be excellent.
1: Paul tells us in this passage that the first step towards excellence
0: is to know Christ personally. Look what he says, beginning in verse 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath reasons for which he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but refuse, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So Paul tells us here, in in his
1: process of growth,
0: that the first step in his life was to know Christ personally, that is, to be saved. You see, when we become, or when Paul became a Christian, it's very interesting, this passage tells us that one of the first things he had to deal with was all the earthly baggage that he was carrying along with him. Look what he says in verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. And you see what happened to Paul. When Paul was saved, his priorities changed. Okay? When Paul was saved, his priorities changed. That is, things that were important to him prior to his salvation no longer were important. And he lists those things for us back in verse 4. Now, what's really fascinating about this is that the very things that he lists are, are many of the very things that bring prestige to us today. Look what he says. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, that is, before I was saved... All my confidence came from myself. Now, it's very interesting if you think about that for a minute, because what is a major part of secular education today, especially in the elementary and high school levels, has to do with self-esteem. The idea is if I just really think good about myself, and I'm pleased with myself, then I'm going to be able to do the right kinds of things and to be successful. And Paul says, hey, that's where I used to be. I put, before I was saved, I put all my confidence in the flesh. He goes on, if any other man thinketh that he hath reasons for which he might trust in the flesh, I more." He says, look it. Look where I was. Look what I had in my grasp. He tells us in verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. He came from the right gene pool, if you will. Okay, he goes on, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He was in the upper class of the Jewish community. Paul was associated with all those things in the Jewish community that brought about prestige and success. Look what he says in verse 6. He carries this to to a tremendous level. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul says, Look, I not only persecuted the church, but I lived the kind of life in my own eyes where I actually thought I was blameless, that I kept the law so good, so well. I had really arrived in my own life. Those were the things that Paul, that were important to Paul. As we see before us in the text, his priorities changed when he accepted Christ as his Savior. Now, you know, folks, that really happens a lot in the Christian life and in the Christian experience. I can give you a lot of examples of that. I'll give you one right from this campus. You probably don't think about this, but it's really true. You know, there really is a high level of prestige in America attached to the fact if you're an academician in a secular university. A very high level of prestige goes along with that, and level of acceptance. Have you ever thought about what people like uh, Dr. Jones, who came from Annapolis, okay, or our other professors that could have been in that particular milieu, if you will, gave up to come here? Now, in their minds, they didn't give up anything.
1: Why? Because their lives had already
0: been changed. Their goals had been changed. Their purposes had been changed. That's precisely what Paul is talking about here. Look at verse 8. We see in verse 8 that this was a continuing process in the life of Paul. Making Jesus Lord just wasn't an abstract idea. It was something that Paul made a conscious decision about every single day of his life. And that's really true for us as well. You know, how often do you ask these very simple questions? How often do I ask them? Is Jesus really Lord of my study habits? How often have you ever thought about bringing Jesus into that process? Is he Lord over my personal relationships? You know, Mark 10, 45 tells us that Jesus Christ came not to be be ministered to, but to minister. Is that what drives us in our personal relationships? Do other people come before ourselves in all the decisions that we make? Is he Lord of our thought life? We can go on and on and on. This is a very practical thing that Paul is dealing with here in this particular passage. Mark mentioned something this morning. You know, how often do you bring Jesus into into the process of thinking about leaving chapel early? Something as mundane as that. You see, that's how important this subject is for the Apostle Paul. Now, why was Christ's lordship so real to him? We have that answer in verse 8. It was so real to him because he had access to a new quality of knowledge. Look what he says. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss,
1: all those things
0: that we just talked about, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. All of a sudden, he has this huge new knowledge base. And that huge new knowledge base is in the person who, of his Lord, Jesus Christ. So Paul's greatest desire, as he talked to the other apostles, in an oral tradition, was to learn as much as he could about his Lord and Savior. That's what drives him here. You see, Christ being preeminent satisfied every need of the Apostle Paul's life. You see, I think that's what excellence has more to do with. So you see, as Paul grew in his walk with Christ, his greatest desire was to gain more and more of the character of his Savior. Listen, if you want a spiritual thermometer, that's all you need. That's all you need to determine if you're really growing. You can determine your spiritual growth by asking yourself that question. Do I desire to know more and more about my Lord and Savior? That's precisely what Paul is saying here. So once again, Paul's move towards faithfulness begins with his personal relationship to Christ. Now there's a second aspect here as well. Secondly, Paul not only knew who Christ was, and had understood and accepted the message, but he also knew Christ by experience. And you know, one of the most, I think one of the most uh, important things that every young person that is raised in the church needs to really take stock of is precisely that. Precisely what we're talking about here. You know, you can know something exists, you can see something and still not really experience it. Now you've all had you've all had uh, examples of this. You've all gone through things like this. I can remember one time years ago, one of the times I was in Chicago, and I'd seen a lot of pictures of the Sears Tower. Okay, it's the tallest building in Chicago, over a hundred stories high. And there's an elevator in that building that can take you from from the first floor to the observation deck in less than 30 seconds. Now, I can sit here and I can tell you all about that. I can tell you what it felt like. (laughs) All right? But until you experience it personally, you really won't be able to totally understand it. And that's precisely what Paul is talking about here. Paul wants to know or experience Christ in a particular way. Look at verse 10. That I may know him. The idea of know there is to experience. It's not to know as a fact. It's not to know about. It's to experience. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The first thing Paul wanted to experience was was Christ's resurrection power in his life on a daily basis. He wanted to experience Paul's resurrection power in his life on a daily basis. Why? Because Paul realized that the source for victory in his life really had to come from outside of his own flesh. And what greater source of power could one have in one's life than the very power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. Okay? That's what Paul desires. And as you well know, when you accept Christ as your personal Savior and the Holy Spirit indwells your life, you now have that resurrection power. You still have your fleshly body, you still have your proclivities to sin, but you still also have a newness of life. And one of the ways that can be explained is in the resurrection power of the Christ. Now he goes on. Look what else he says. Not only does he desire the power of his resurrection, but he also desires, and how many of us could really pray this? Could I pray this? He also desired the fellowship of his suffering. Now why? What in the world is Paul talking about here? Why would Paul desire, once again, the fellowship of suffering being made conformable to his death. Now folks listen. You're going to learn something as you get older. There is a lot of suffering in this world. Maybe some of you have already experienced a lot. Maybe far beyond your years. There's a lot of pain in this world. Some of it is physical. Some of it is emotional. Some of it is caused by your own failings sometimes it has nothing to do with what you do you ever thought about why God allows pain why even God allows evil think about it how would you ever be able to to understand what God's goodness is really like without comparison See, you'd have no way to compare it. You'd have no way to know anything about what God's goodness is really like. And so what Paul asked for is simply this. Resurrection power allows us to go through the rough times. And young people, there are going to be plenty of rough times in your life. Maybe more rough times than good times. That was sure true in the life of the Apostle Paul. You can go read the whole list of them in Second Corinthians. We're all called to bear different crosses. As I said before, sometimes the world system puts those crosses on us. Sometimes we might even cause them ourselves. But nevertheless, there is going to be pain and suffering. But we are equipped to go through it because we now possess resurrection power. Spurgeon said this, when you're in the furnace, he has already been there before you. You know, who could have suffered more than the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross? And as you well know, you know, the greatest suffering there was not the pain of the cross. The greatest suffering there was not the nails in his hands or the sword in his side or not being able to get air. The greatest pain of the cross was being rejected by his father. Because of what Christ did and because of his resurrection, Paul says, I want that resurrection power demonstrated in my life because I know hard times are coming. Well, how do we as Christians then experience this faithfulness or excellence, if you will? Look at verses 12 to 14.
1: Not as though, and this,
0: folks, listen, young people, if you could just grasp what Paul is saying here in this first phrase, oh, it will save you so much heartache in your life. Not as though I had already attained. Either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend or grab hold of, that for which also I am apprehended or or caught of by Christ Jesus, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I'm not there yet, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, how do we then as Christians experience what Paul is talking about. Let me give you some ideas out of this passage. All the way through verses 12, 13, and 14, you get the idea that Paul is laboring, that he is striving. Okay? The first point I would like to give you is simply this. You reach what Paul is talking about here through hard work or perseverance. Young people, that is a trait that you need to develop in every aspect of your life right now. There is no substitute for hard work and perseverance. Hard work and perseverance can overcome a lot of things. I've seen very gifted people fail because they don't persevere. I've seen, I've seen people that aren't quite as gifted succeed because they They persevere. What is perseverance? It's keeping at something until it is finished or completed. Now listen, that can go into every single area of your life. You can talk about the big picture of life when you talk about perseverance, or you can talk about the very next assignment that you're going to do. You keep at it until it's what? Until it's completed. Until it is finished. It's keeping at something until it is finished or completed. And the key to everything in our lives, I've, I believe, the key to, to everything, you, that, that this is the key to everything that we do, that we attempt to do for God, it has to do, to a great extent, with perseverance. Just think about Paul's, Paul's own life. Uh, you know, you're in a period right now in your life of preparation. And, you know, you might be having a hard time of fitting that in to your overall goal of life, okay, where you want to be 20 years from now. This whole thing just might not seem to really fit at this point. But I see this, once again, as Paul does here, as part of the race. You realize when you go through and you check out Scripture, how many people that really mattered and did great things for God were set aside for a period of preparation in their lives? How long was Moses set aside for preparation? Forty years. How long did Paul spend on the backside of the wilderness before he was ready to come out and be an apostle? Three years. That's where you are right now. You're in this preparation stage. But it has a lot to do with how you will eventually finish. You know, young people, I've spent a lot of years... Uh, at this college and the thing that breaks my heart i think more than anything else is to see young people who began at a starting line and never finished began and never finished you know i i used to tell the parents that from very early age all of us in the psychological terms we develop what is called a life script and if you develop a life script of, of, of beginning and beginning and beginning and beginning and never finishing anything, that's exactly how you will live your life. You will begin over and over and over and over and over again and never see anything to its conclusion. You need to learn right now. And what are, whatever mundane activity it is, when you make a commitment to something, and you begin something, you see it to the end. And you, know what, and you know what might happen? It might be mediocre. It might be in the middle. But God's not concerned about that. God's concerned about your faithfulness. He's concerned about your stewardship. That's much more important to Him. It's much more important to Him that you finish and are faithful to the task. And faithfulness means giving it your best. And giving a particular task your best might mean you finish where? In the middle. See, once again, it's, it's the content you put to these words that are of utmost importance. Young people, listen. Take it from the Apostle Paul. When you start a task, and the best way you can learn this in your own life is to start with the little tasks and to make sure you Perseverance also implies confidence in this passage. Paul, and I love this because it really speaks to my heart and I know it speaks to yours. Now here's the great apostle Paul towards the end of his ministry. Look what he says in verse 12. Not as though I had already attained. I mean, folks, listen. If Paul doesn't think he's attained, there's sure hope for us. See, Paul hadn't arrived yet. And one of the greatest dangers in the Christian life is to really believe we have arrived, that we have all the answers, that we've got everything in order, that we've got all our priorities set. You know, I'll tell you what, if you're at that point in your life, I'd run into people like this. When you get on your knees at night and you can't think of anything to ask God to forgive you for, God help you. I mean that. I mean that all in all seriousness. God help you. Because we're still all miserable wretches living in the in a fleshly body. And I've run into Christians like that. Well, you know, let me think. Did I really did I really sin today? You know, see what Paul is saying. Not as though I had already apprehended or, or attained. Paul knew there were areas in his life at the very end of his ministry that he still needed to deal with. Perseverance also implies confidence. Paul realized that there will still be many areas in his life that would need perfecting and maturing. And you know, folks, you know what that says? That says there's still hope for you and for me. I'm so glad that this passage is in the Scripture. Perseverance, thirdly, also implies a goal. Look at verse 12 again. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. It's very interesting in that verse that we also see the word perfect. The word perfect. And the word perfect implies finishing. Look at verse 14. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The prize for Paul was the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Finishing his work and being called home to heaven to see his beloved Savior, Jesus. Now, verse 13 is crucial because it gives us the method. I love this. Look at verse 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind I want you to to listen to this. We live in a culture today of victimization. And there are people in this room that have been victimized. I know there are. I know some of you come out of really very, very horrible past that you had nothing to do with. But what the world wants you to do today is to always go back and think about that and use it as a crutch. What does Paul say in 13 again? Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. Watch this. Forgetting those things which are behind. They're gone. They're past. I can't deal with them anymore. I've got to look to the future. So what does Paul do? Number one, he doesn't look back. Two things here. Okay, he doesn't look back in the sense of being a victim. He doesn't look back in the sense of pride, all those things he used to have. Young people, listen, this is so important. Your focus has to be on the goal. Your focus has to be on the goal. Long before any of you were born, uh, one of the greatest events that ever happened took place in the mid-'50s. And what happened simply was, that up and all the way through the 1940s and into the early 50s, one of the greatest milestones would be the first person to break the four-minute mile. It had never been done. Everybody tried. It seemed like nobody could ever break that four-minute barrier. Then, in early spring of 1954, A British surgeon named Roger Bannister, for the first time, broke the four-minute mile in England. I think he ran 3.59 something. It wasn't six weeks later that John Landy, who was an Australian down in Australia, also broke the four-minute mile for the first time. I can remember as a young boy uh, on black and white television watching the British Empire games from Vancouver, British Columbia, because those two men were going to meet for the first time. And as the race progressed, Landy led from the very beginning. Led through lap one, he led through lap two, he led through lap three, he led into the fourth lap. And as they came to the last 220, the very last turn, as they went to go around that turn, John Landy looked over his left shoulder. And the very instant Landy looked over his left shoulder, Bannister passed him on his right shoulder, and the race was over. What did Landy do? He made one fatal mistake. He took his eyes off what? The goal. Okay. He took his eyes off the goal, and it cost him that race. You know, what Paul is talking about here is a lifetime focus of perseverance. It reminds me of a, of a very dear lady who, who I admire greatly. Uh, last uh, last uh, I think Tuesday evening, a number of the faculty here got to have uh, got to have coffee with Eva Schaefer, Dr. Francis Schaefer's wife. She's now 81 years of age, just as sharp as ever. Talk about pursuing the goal, keeping the eyes on the mark. You know where she's headed at 81. She's headed to China. She's headed to China to once again minister to the country where she was born in. See what I'm talking about? Keeping your eye on the mark, keeping your eye on the prize, that's precisely what the key is here. And young people, listen. You're into the last four weeks of a year. I'm sure there are a number of you here that if you had it to do over again, would have done a lot of things differently. But what does Paul say about that? He says it's where? Where is it? It's in the past. It's over. It's done. But you've got four weeks in front of you. And you've got a year in front of you, or two years if the Lord tarries, or whatever. But the point simply is, redeem the time right now. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, the key for a steward or a manager is to be found faithful. And I'll tell you what. Be found faithful in the little tasks right now. You know, your education is not something that's cosmic, okay? It's not the end of the world as to how you do this semester. But I'll tell you what, the very same kinds of things that you build into your life right now that Paul is talking about here, even in the little areas, will be of great gain to you later on. And I trust as you end this year that you will think about this passage about the fact that, first of all, the reason the Apostle Paul was able to do what he could do was because, number one, he was saved. And number two, because he put his, because he allowed Jesus not only to be, while well, Jesus was Lord of his life, he allowed him to be Lord of his life in every area as well. And thirdly, Paul realized that he had to continue to persevere and to press on. And the idea of pressing on there is the idea of straining for the goal with every single fiber of your being. That's the idea. And young people, that's how you ought to live the Christian life. Forgetting the past. Looking to that goal. That prize. Which ultimately is Christ's likeness. And so let me encourage you today. Take this passage seriously. Apply it to your life. Allow God to do marvelous things in the little things in your life. And you'll be amazed what he will do in the big things as well. Let's stand